0: It's good to be in God's house. It's good to be around those who love Him, and it's good to be in His Word. And I'm looking forward to our study this evening in the book of Acts, chapter number four, here, as we think about Jesus and this thought that there is none other name, none other name given or under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter number four, verse number one says, and as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people, and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide, howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing, by, or standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and I guess, let's read on down to verse number 22. So, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. So as we think about what's going on in this passage and we think about Jesus, really, the focus of this text keeps coming back to Jesus. It keeps coming back to the, the benefits of being around Jesus, the power of Jesus' name, and our focus is constantly drawn back to Jesus. But as we think about what is happening, as we begin chapter number four, if you remember back to last week, we looked at chapter number three. And if you'll remember with me, Uh, in chapter number three, we find Peter and John. And they're on their way up to the temple. And they're headed up there at the hour of prayer. And as they are getting ready to enter the temple, they come to the beautiful gate of the temple. And there's an impotent man that is laying there as it was his daily uh, usual place to be. Someone would carry him there, place him at this gate, and he would beg for money. And you remember that Uh, Peter asked him to fasten his eyes upon him, and the man thought that he was going to get money that day. And he got something that he, he never imagined he would have. He got healed. And he was walking and leaping and running around the temple praising God, and all the people began to take notice. And this whole crowd had gathered around Peter and John. And Peter, taking advantage of the opportunity, had begun to preach to that crowd of people of Jesus Christ. He had told them, you know, why marvel you at us as if it was by our own righteousness or, you know, our power. And he gave all of the glory to Jesus Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter number four, verse number one, is this entire crowd is gathered around Peter and John. And Peter is just, you know, getting to the good part of his message. I don't know how that worked. If he was just getting started and these guys come rolling in and they stop it, or if he had just finished. But regardless, we find that as Peter is preaching, the, the rulers begin to take notice. And first of all, this evening, we'll notice the offensiveness of Jesus. The offensiveness of Jesus. You find there in verse number one, as they spake unto the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. So we find this group of individuals gathering together, the priests, the captain of the temple, he would have been like the the captain of the temple guard, he would have been one that was in charge of no kind of uh, bad things happening, no mobs forming, no violence happening in the temple, and the Sadducees. And if you remember, the Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there's anything after death. They believe that you just die and that's it. There's no resurrection according to them. But arguably some of the priests would have been Pharisees. So it's interesting that this group is coming together because the Pharisees and the Sadducees they hated each other. They argued all the time over the resurrection. And in fact we'll find that uh, later on in the book of Acts that Paul uses that to his advantage. He kind of throws a little grenade in the midst of the crowd and goes, oh, I'm free now. He gets them arguing with one another. But we find that in this case, they're unified. You see there in verse number two, they come upon them in verse number one. Verse number two, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It's an interesting term there. This group is grieved. Down deep in their being, they're upset. They can't fathom that Peter and John are here in the temple preaching in Jesus' name. They're, They're teaching people about resurrection through Jesus' name. So you have part of this group that believes in resurrection, part of this group that doesn't believe in resurrection, but they're unified together because they do not like Jesus. They're offended. They're offended that Peter and John would dare to speak in the name of he whom they have just, not that many weeks ago, crucified and put on the cross and killed. They thought that they had gotten rid of Jesus. They thought that they had gotten rid of this terrible religion. But yet, here are people once again coming into the temple and preaching in Jesus' name preaching that through Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. So we find that there is an offensiveness to Jesus. Consider with me this evening that Satan is perfectly fine with people being religious. In fact, he prefers it. He prefers that people be religious. Because the most dangerous lies are the ones that are closest to the truth. So if Satan can sell you a bill of goods that smells and seems and feels and sounds and looks an awful lot like the truth, but just a couple key things have been removed, oh, he's happy, because then he can keep you deluded. If you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees on this day, Satan was perfectly okay with them being religious leaders. They even had the scriptures. They had the Bible. They knew it front to back. Back to front, it was their entire life to study the Old Testament Scriptures. And Satan was perfectly fine with that because they were religious, but they did not have a relationship with God. They were lifted up in the pride of their own self-righteousness, in the pride of their own understanding, the pride of their own good works, and they were offended at Jesus. And so it is today that many people are fine, Satan's fine with them being religious, and there's many people throughout this world who would even claim to be Christians. But yet they are offended at the true Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is offensive. Jesus comes and he preaches to us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are not good enough on our own to make it to heaven. That the only way to have relationship with with God is to come by way of the cross, to come by way of Jesus Christ. But then we see not only the offensiveness of Jesus, you see there that they laid hands on them. They're they're so upset that they come and they take Peter and John. They haul them off to prison. They lock them away because it was almost nighttime. So they lock them away. They say, well, we'll deal with them tomorrow. But notice in verse number four, Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed. So while there was some offensiveness to the name of Jesus, it would seem that the larger part of the group was not offended. I think it's kind of an understatement there that Luke makes. Many of them which heard the word believed. Notice the number at the end. The number of the men was about 5,000? Man, talk about revival. That's awesome. If you went on a mission trip and you were preaching to a crowd of people and about 5,000 men plus women and children get saved, whew, that would be some kind of a prayer letter, or some kind of a report that you send back home. That's awesome. Here's a massive group of people that have heard the Word of God. They've heard the message that Peter preached, they've seen the miracle that God did in this impotent man's life, and they have responded to the truth. What an amazing thing. About 5000. But then we see when we think about this, as we think about this entire event, these men they they lay Peter or they lay hands on Peter and John, they put them in prison. The next day, this whole uh, group of people are gathered together. Caiaphas, Annas, the high priest, John, and Alexander. And it's like the who's who directory of powerful religious people in this area. right? They all come together with the kindred of the high priest. They're gathered together at Jerusalem, and they're going to grill them. It's like the Sanhedrin court. It's like going before the supreme court of the land, right? And they, they drag Peter and John before them. Verse number seven, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Notice the first two words of verse number eight. Then who? Peter. Then Peter. Now, so in verse number 7, they're, they're demanding of Peter, by what power, by what name have ye done this? And then Peter gives an answer. Now, pause with me for a second and turn in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter number 26. Hold your place here. We won't be long in the book of Matthew, but Matthew chapter number 26 Verse number 69, the end of Matthew chapter number 26, Jesus has been drugged out of the garden. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been drugged out of the garden, and he's been mocked and put on trial. Verse number 69, now Peter sat without in the palace. And a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And he, and again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by, and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out. And wept bitterly. If you think about what's happening here in Acts chapter number four, the last time that Peter was put on trial like this, the last time that people came to him and asked him, "Are you part of Jesus? Are you one of his disciples?" The last time that this had happened to Peter, he'd failed. The last time he had turned his back, he had betrayed Jesus. He had not identified with him. He had even cursed and sworn to try to push the attention off and to push the heat off. He didn't want to identify with Jesus. But we come to Acts chapter number 4, and now it's not just a maid. Now it's not just a group of people warming themselves by a fire while Jesus is being put on trial. Now, Peter himself is the one who's on trial. He's been drugged before the high priests. He's been drugged before the powerful people of the land. And they're asking him, Peter, in whose name have you done this? And this time, Peter, he doesn't mess up. This time, he doesn't turn his back on Jesus. This time, he doesn't forsake Christ. This time he answers boldly and strongly. So we see not only the offensiveness of Jesus, but we see the healing power of Jesus. Peter was a changed man. Peter was a man who had been healed by Jesus. And certainly we could go to the the passage there, I believe it's in John chapter 21, as Jesus finds the disciples and he gathers them to him on the seaside of Galilee. And he asks Peter that question three times, Peter Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter was a changed man. We see his answer here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Peter doesn't leave any doubt. He's very clear of who healed this man, whose power, in whose name this was done. So we see the healing power of Jesus in Peter's life, but certainly we also see the healing power of Jesus in this lame man's life, this impotent man. They saw it on full display. We examined it more closely last week, but we're given this tidbit of information here in verse number 22. It says, for the man was above 40 years old. So we weren't given his age back in chapter number 3, but now we're told that he was over 40 years old. So he had been in this condition for a long time if it was his daily routine to go to the beautiful gate of the temple, it's arguable that probably most of the folks in Jerusalem had seen him. At least most of the practicing Jews in Jerusalem had seen this man. They had walked by him. They had interacted with him. Most of them probably knew him by name if he had been sitting there for years and years begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And his life was completely changed. He was transformed physically. And all of these people, they saw. They knew. They knew this man. They knew that he had been healed. And for them, the healing power of Jesus was on full display. You know, this evening, we ought to be testaments to the healing power of Jesus Christ. The, real, the reality, the truth is that if Jesus comes and takes up residence in your heart, by necessity, he's going to change some things. Some things probably isn't the right term for it. By necessity, he's going to change everything. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The healing power of Jesus. When someone as powerful as Jesus Christ takes up residence within your very being, he's going to fix a lot. He's going to rearrange things. He's going to make a difference. And the healing power of Jesus was on display in Peter's life and in the life of this impotent man. So we see the offensiveness of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, but let's notice the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity... As Peter talks about this impotent man, he very clearly states that it is by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by his power, that this man was made whole. It wasn't by Peter's power. It wasn't by the power of the high priests. It wasn't by the power of some religious group of that day. It was by the power of Jesus. Exclusive. Not only that, Peter goes on then, in verse number 11, he says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Now, if you hold your place here and turn back to Matthew once again, Matthew chapter number 21 this time, Matthew 21 and verse number 42. Jesus, it says, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Notice who Jesus is speaking to. Verse 45. And the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables. They perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now, realize... This is only a few months of time between Matthew 21 and Acts 4. These are the same guys. These are the same people that Jesus, he, he went back to Psalm 118, verse number 22, I believe it is. Psalm 118, 22, And Jesus read for them, he quoted for them that verse. And he expounded upon that verse and he, he warned them. He warned them that His kingdom was coming, and that if they rejected Him that ultimately they were going to fall upon the rock, that they were going to be dashed into pieces, they were going to be ground into powder. Peter here, he hearkens back. He says this, speaking of Jesus, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. In making stone structures, living out in Pennsylvania, I think I've mentioned this before, I grew up in a stone farmhouse that was built in the 1800s, and the, the rock walls are about a foot and a half thick, all the way around the house. But there's one particular stone in the corner of the house, the back, I think it's the back left corner, is the cornerstone on that house, and it is massive. And it's a stone that obviously they spent a lot of time investing in making sure that it was square, that it was flat, that it was level and plumb, that it was prepared to use as a reference marker, as the chief cornerstone for the entire house. But certainly there were a lot of rocks on that property that the builders looked at and they rejected. They looked at them and they said, no, that doesn't, it's not large enough. Um, That one's, it's not flat enough. Maybe that one's not thick enough. That one's too rounded. That one will take too much work until they found the right stone to use. This passage and what Peter is saying here is that the Pharisees, the religious rulers of that day, they came and they looked at Jesus and they said, no, not the right one. They rejected him. They thought, we're the master builders. We know what we're looking for. We know what to to inspect. And Jesus isn't the one. And they rejected the wrong stone. And God said, no, this is the stone. Jesus is the head of the corner. He is the chief cornerstone. Peter here speaks of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He goes on in verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. First of all, there is not salvation in any other name. You cannot pray to anyone else. You cannot go to anyone else. You cannot come to God in anyone else's name and find salvation. Your name is not good enough. Your pastor's name is not good enough. Mary's name is not good enough. Your parents' names are not good enough. The only name which will grant you access into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the name of Jesus. And he knows who are his. There is no other name that is under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved only the name of Jesus. You know, they were offended. They were grieved that Peter would bring the name of Jesus into the temple and that he would teach and preach people to people about resurrection through Jesus. And here's Peter. You got to love it. A guy who turned his back on Jesus 3 times in a row in the same night after Jesus had warned him about it. And here he is in the power of the Holy Spirit speaking with boldness in front of the very men who not that many weeks ago took his Lord in Christ and crucified him in front of his eyes. And here's Peter, a changed man, standing before them with boldness, and he's speaking of Jesus. Speaking of how exclusive Jesus is, and how these men must turn to Jesus or else suffer the consequences of it. So we see the offensiveness of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus. But let's notice then the transformative power of Jesus. I know some of these kind of run together. But verse number 13, this is interesting to me. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You know, as this group of educated elites, this powerhouse of big names in Jerusalem and Israel, as they were all gathered together, and certainly all of these men, from the time that they were very little, they had spent time under rabbis. Some of them were certainly rabbis themselves. They had groups of people that they were teaching. These were the elite of the elite, and they're sitting there, and here's these two backwater uh, redneck fishermen from Galilee, Peter and John, and they're just standing there like two hillbillies, because they're from the hills of Galilee, you know, and they're just standing there speaking with boldness. They're not afraid of these guys at all. They know what these guys can do. They know the power that they have. And here they're, they're just boldly speaking of Jesus Christ. And these guys, they, they sit back and they take note of it. They marvel. They, they remember who Peter and John are. It's obvious in their dress and in their speech. These are unlearned and ignorant men. Now, when it comes to the, the subject of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, if you want to find a good spot to catch some uh, sea bass, they're your guys, right? They're very learned they're not ignorant at all when it comes to that. But when it comes to uh, finer things and schooling and all of this, certainly they are unlearned and ignorant men. But yet, they're speaking of Christ. He's reasoning from the scriptures in a way that these guys sit back and go, Wow, that's a powerful argument. Huh. They, they know what they're talking about. I, I didn't think of that verse. They're blown away. They marveled. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You know, it's sad, really. These men, they had heard Jesus speak. They had heard Jesus preach, and they had marveled at the words of Jesus. They had been blown away at Jesus and how much He knew. The things that He could weaved together as he took Scripture and he just opened it up for them and he revealed himself to them in the pages of Scripture. Even in their hardened heart state, with their blinded eyes, they had noticed these things about Jesus. And now as they look at Peter and John, they take knowledge of the fact that these men had been with Jesus, that Jesus had made a difference in their lives. There is a transformative power that comes from being around Jesus. How sad that they did not stop longer to consider that transformative power. And I'll just stop and mention this here. This is certainly not the thrust of the passage, and I don't want to try to pull this too much out of the text. But I think it is proper and fitting that you and I think about the fact that if we spend time with Jesus... Others will necessarily notice that if you and I truly sit at the feet of Jesus, that it is going to have a transformative effect on our lives. And how often do we not reveal that to people in our lives for the fact that we do not spend time with Jesus as we are? How often do people rub shoulders with us and they don't notice anything about Jesus at all And how sad that is. People ought to take notice that we're different, that we've been with Jesus. So we see the offensiveness of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus, and the transformative power of Jesus. But last of all, let's look at the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. If you think about what is going on in this passage the most powerful men in the land have gathered together and it is their desire to stamp this out there's a conspiracy we we looked at sunday as they gathered a council this is the same group of guys the same council has met once again and there's a conspiracy to stamp out this religion A conspiracy to stamp out this and get rid of the name of Jesus. We've got to stop this. And here's just a group of unlearned and ignorant men in the face of all of that. Without the connections, without the resources, just doing what Jesus told them to do. So we see the council acknowledges this notable miracle. You see there in verse number 14, Behold... They're beholding the man which was healed, standing with them. They could say nothing against it. In other words, these guys, they're looking at this guy. I forget what we called him last week, Frank. They're looking at Frank and they recognize, we've walked by him every week. Didn't you just give him a couple gold coins the other day? Yeah, I did. They knew him. There's nothing they can say against this miracle. They know that this this man can't walk. I know that. In fact, this morning on my way to work, he was begging. He was was asking me for money. I've seen him for years and years and years. I know that he can't walk. But here he is. He's healed. He's standing in front of me. They could say nothing against it. Verse 15 but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. So they, they take Peter and John and this impotent man who's no longer impotent, and they send them out. They're like, guys, go. We, we've got to talk here. They confer among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed, a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. They say, well... You know, everybody in Jerusalem's heard about this already, and we can't say anything about it because it's true. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they say, well, there's, there's not really anything we can do, but let's threaten them at least, because we don't want this going any farther than it already has. It's got to stop in Jerusalem. It can't spread. So let's, let's threaten them. So they, they acknowledge the miracle. There's nothing that they can say against it. They command Peter and John, don't ever speak, don't ever teach in the name of Jesus again. But you've got to love Peter and John's answer. Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. They said, well, guys, let me ask you a question. You think it's better for us to listen to you more than to listen to God? You figure that out. The ball's in your court. Answer that question for me. Of course, obvious answer, no. You should, you should answer to God. You should follow what he said. Peter and John are revealing to them that God has commanded them to speak in Jesus' name. Verse twenty: For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. I find that we see the authority of Jesus on display here. And it's easy for you and I to just brush over this and to think nothing of it because we're familiar with it. We We know the account. We know the story. We know what happens in the end. And so we're just used to it. But stop and put yourself in Peter and John's shoes for a moment. This is... For all intents and purposes, this is the government coming and saying, don't you speak in Jesus' name anymore. And I know it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, you know, if our government ever did that, if the United States government ever came and said, don't you ever speak in Jesus' name again, don't you ever teach anyone in his name again, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, I wouldn't listen to him. I, I would obey God rather than men. But I think we all recognize deep within ourselves that it's a lot easier to say that than to literally be facing death at the hands of the very men who just killed Jesus not that long ago. You've seen them do it. And here they are saying, don't you dare. You stop. You stop talking in his name. You stop teaching people in his name. Don't do it again. But Peter and John are not submitted to the authority of this group of men. For they are submitted to a higher authority. They are submitted to the authority of Jesus. And at this point in their lives, they've come past their failure of not staying with Jesus, not identifying with him, of turning their backs on Jesus. And now they're ready to stand because they recognize that Jesus is truly the Messiah. They recognize the authority that Jesus has, and they're willing to give their very lives for Him. And certainly, not very far here on in the book of Acts, James is going to give his life for Jesus. And not very far after that, um, Stephen, is going to give his life for Jesus. So it it certainly is something that they felt and that they understood. But this is really the first time that they're facing real persecution, other than at the cross. This is the first time that these men are being tested without Jesus there. But they are submitted to him. They are submitted to his authority. You see, they had found that there was none other name. This evening, I hope that as we have looked at these different verses, as we have looked at Jesus on display in this passage, I hope that your heart has been stirred. I hope that you have a testimony of having come to him, that you have experienced the healing power of Jesus in your life that you've experienced the transformative power of Jesus, that you've recognized the exclusivity of Jesus, that you've turned to Him, and that your life is subject not to the authority of anyone else, not subject to your authority, but that your life is subject to His authority. That King Jesus sits on the throne of your heart, not yourself, And not anyone else. This evening, may we be people who recognize, realize the benefits of living for, following after Jesus. And just hold fast to him and live for him. Certainly, 5,000 people, that's pretty neat. I know there was a lot of rough things going on in the midst of this. But I'm sure at the same time as they're facing that, they're happy. They're rejoicing. They're saying, you know what? They're threatening us. 5,000 people? And that's awesome. That's exciting. And they were just happy to be people who were following Jesus. May you and I always be people that put Jesus first in our lives, that follow after Him and that preach to others of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.